Doesn't it make for a great evening when you have two people that are in conflict in a group that you like? That's bad enough if you don't really know the people that well. But if it's two people that you love, it's a really difficult thing when that happens. I, I've been in that situation before, a social situation, and it's pretty uncomfortable. In, fa in fact, recently I was in that social situation. And it's really uncomfortable, and I've got to tell you, I'm not looking forward to getting back with that particular group again. Even though the two people have reconciled, they're fine with each other. They don't mind getting back together again from what I've heard. But I'm just not really ready for that. It pretty much ruined my evening and maybe my whole weekend. Tension among friends makes everyone uncomfortable. And it ruins the dynamics of any social situation. Now, if that's true of friendships, and I trust you can understand that, you've probably been in that situation more than you'd like to admit. It's also true of churches. Well, it's even more true of churches. Arguments, quarreling, jealousy, self-centeredness, these are all things that can ruin the dynamics of a local church. And when the dynamic of a local church is injured, the result is far more devastating than a ruined evening or a ruined dinner. As destructive as that can be, as hurtful as that can be. The purpose of the local church is to glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission, which is to make disciples, to go make disciples, to evangelize them and to teach them, to give them biblical instruction. And do you really think that the purpose of the local church is advanced when it's marked by interpersonal conflict and self-centeredness. No, of course not. It's not advanced at all. It's not helped at all. Paul didn't think so either. That's apparent from Paul's letters, not just 1 and 2 Corinthians, but many of his letters, that he perceived that there was a problem in almost every local church that he founded with this issue of quarreling, self-centeredness, the me attitude in most churches, a failure to get along. Matter of fact, he talked about it quite a bit. Disunity was certainly a problem in the church at Philippi, and we consider that a relatively healthy church. We use that to compare and contrast with the church at Philippi, even recently. But, but disunity was a major problem in Philippi. Disunity, believe it or not, was a major problem in Ephesus. That was disunity of a different color, a different type, a different kind, the disunity in Ephesus was between Jew and Gentile believer. They were having a little bit of difficulty. The dis disunity in Philippi it was just among personalities. Different personality types couldn't get along in Philippi. In, Eph in Ephesus, it was over race, basically, basically. And we still have that in our cultures today. Certainly in Corinth, there was disunity. It's one of the major things we've been talking about for the last couple of years. And today, by the way, we finish our Corinthian study. And I, and I hope to tie everything in from the very first lesson we did. In 1 Corinthians, all the way to the very end, Paul's going to have an inclusio. He's going to tie the, what he said in the beginning with what he says today at the end. It might have also been a problem in Colossae in Rome as well. Paul hints that there were disunity problems there, but he doesn't face it head on like he does in his letter to the Philippians and to the Ephesians, and certainly in these two letters to the Corinthians. I guess what I want to say today as I begin this final lesson is that the issue of disunity wasn't just unique to the Corinthian church. It can happen even in the best of churches. But I've got to tell you, it will bring a church down. It'll bring a church down 
faster than anything else. It'll ruin a church's ministry. It'll ruin a church's outreach to the community. And isn't that what we're supposed to be here for? Frankly, we're not here just for us. We're not here to entertain ourselves. We're not here to take care of our own needs, not as a primary thing. If, if you're here today and you're saying, you just minister to me, minister to me, minister to me. Something's wrong. You see, we're supposed to be here thinking about the other guy or the other girl. And the more we do that, the better the dynamic's going to be. It's the same way in a marriage. If either partner in a marriage starts thinking it's about them, you serve me, you obey me. You know, that happens, husbands. I'm the boss here. You obey me. Have you ever read Ephesians 5? Yeah, I've read it. It also says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, sport. And when that dynamic happens, when each of the two parties in a marriage are, are thinking of the other person's needs as more important than their own, don't you see those marriages spiral upward? But what happens when one, when one partner starts thinking, well, my needs are more important. They never say it, but they would think that. And then the other person says, well, gosh, I'm not buying that. And then, the, then it spirals downward. And that's just two people. What happens if you get 100, 200, 300, 400 people together? And everybody starts thinking that my needs are more important than the other person. The church is dead. It may not have been buried yet, but it's dead when that happens. And that's why it was such an important issue to Paul. In the first churches, Philippi, Ephesians, Ephesus, Colossae, Corinth, it was important to him then. And things haven't changed. That's why it's so important to do the study, to do the study of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I was in a class one time with the late Dwight Pentecost, J. Dwight Pentecost. And I asked him one time, it was in the beginning of our church, and I asked him, I said, Dr. P., if you were me, and you were just starting a, a church, it was called um, Grace Evangelical Church at the time. We've been through two name changes over the years. It was called Grace Evangelical Church. I said, what would you preach? What would you start off with? And he said, oh, I'd start off with First and Second Corinthians. I said, that was not what I was expecting. I thought, John... Romans, I mean, a good Dallas Seminary guy, you've got to start off with Romans, don't you? That's how you can tell if, if the pastor of a church went to Dallas Seminary. They probably have preached Romans in the last several years, or Ephesians. Yeah. Th those were, that's what I would have expected. I said, why First and Second Corinthians? Why would, why would you spend time in those books? He said, because every problem a church can face is mentioned in First and Second Corinthians. Every single one. So just so go through it. And go through it periodically. Go through it every few years, because... People are going to say, yeah, you taught that before. Remember when it was? Yeah, that was back in the 90s. Remember anything about it? Not really. Okay, let's do it again. And disunity and a lack of love was at the, at the foundation of their problems that they had. So today we finish this great study. You know, Olson Nazars didn't just start recently fracturing churches. It's been going on through the whole church age. And this is something that we all need to hear periodically, not just for our church but for interpersonal relationships as well. It's so critical. We've got to get away from a self-centered attitude, from a selfish attitude and toward, to a selfless attitude. Otherwise, we're done. And it does matter. You know, your dinner group, you can find a different group of friends, probably. But if enough local churches act in disunity, Paul knew, the Holy Spirit knew, and you and I both know too, the ministry that we have to the community is not going to work, and we would not have fulfilled our function. And quite frankly, if we're not fulfilling our function, 
in the Great Commission, there's no point in us being here. If we're not going to fulfill the plan and the purpose that God set forth for us, there's no point. And the reason I say there's no point is because God's not going to be pleased. He's not going to bless it. He's not going to glorify it. He's not going to be glorified. May as well just try to find a church that is fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, I hope this one will. I think we have. I just want us to continue to. And one of the reasons that we've been a healthy church for so long, I believe, is because we've been able to keep this unity to a minimum. Oh, there's always some. There's going to be when you get people together. But we must keep it to a minimum. And that's what Paul's doing as he closes out 2 Corinthians. He's making one final plea for unity in the church. He's actually ending up right where he started. In 1 Corinthians, he began with 1 Corinthians with a plea that sounded like this. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. And then he's going to go on to say part of the quarrels was something we, we might just find incredibly insane. They were arguing over who baptized them. But I just bet if we were to go back in time and the Corinthian church could hear some of the things we quarrel about, I'm talking about we 21st century believers, they would say, what, are they, what is the matter with them? And if you have the Corinthians asking what's the matter with you, you got a real problem. That there be no divisions among you. Paul's going to return to some of that exact same terminology today as he closes. He began with this terminology, this unity terminology, and he's going to conclude with that terminology. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, the text reads this way, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. As Paul concludes this admittedly emotional letter, where he's had to alternate between correction and encouragement, he slips in a subtle hint of family right from the beginning. The term Adelphos, which is translated brother. We, we see that in the term Philadelphia, brotherly love. Adelphos means brother, and, and there's a form of it that can mean sister as well. It's translated in your text brethren sometimes, but it reminds the Corinthians that they're not alone. And while there are aspects of, of Christianity that are very individual, just between you and God, then there's another whole aspect of Christianity that's very communal. We live in community. We worship in community. We were designed to worship with other people. Now, that doesn't fit some of our personality types. We've had people come, come and go in the church over the years. And some people say, I just prefer to worship at home by myself. I'll just listen to a tape. The problem is we think we're growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when we sit home and just listen to a tape but we forget we're violating part of the Bible that we're studying. 
which says to forsake not the assembly of ourselves together. So we can't pretend like we're becoming this ultra-mature person if we refuse to worship in the context that the boss set up. So it has nothing to do with personality types. It has to do with a command from the boss. We were designed to live and worship in community. And by, I mean that with the utmost respect, by the way, by calling him the boss. But he is, isn't he? Then Paul's going to introduce, after he introduces the family thing, you're, you're part of a group. You're part of a community. Then he introduces five present imperatives. The present imperative is, is a little different from another kind of imperative in the New Testament called an aorist. I don't want to bore you with that, but I do want to tell you what a present imperative means. It means it's something that's typically not just done once. It's something we have to keep the, our eye on the ball. We're going to do it continually over and over again. The New Testament scholar Murray Harris describes these present imperatives this way. He said, these are ideal Christian characteristics that should be cultivated before Paul's arrival. He sees that in the present imperative. These are things that you need to work on before I get there. These characteristics, then, will lead to unity within the church. So there's five of them. Now, we call them imperatives. Sometimes they teach you not to use the word command because it's a little strong. That's what these are. These, these are commands. Now, they're not commands from me. They're not commands from some church consulting group as to how you make your church healthier and wealthier and all that. These are commands from the Lord Jesus Christ himself through the Holy Spirit teaching. These are commands that we have no choice but to follow if we're going to walk in fellowship with God. And I trust that that's what we want to do. Five present imperatives, five characteristics that will lead to unity in the local church. And unity in the local church, just so you're tracking along with me, unity in the local church is what's going to allow us to fulfill the Great Commission. Without unity, we're not going to get it done. That's the way in families, it's the way in church, it's the way on athletic teams too. There, there was one that I know. There's one, maybe two athletic teams over the course of history that have had great disunity in the locker room but ended up winning things. The Oakland Athletics back in the 70s, they, they pulled it off. But most other teams have to have some unity in the locker room before they can go out and play a football game, for example, and, and do, any, do any good with it at all. Well, churches have to, too. So why unity? Not so they get this touchy-feely, good feeling about ourselves, like Rodney King, that poor guy, I used to make fun of him. I don't make fun of him anymore. He was just thrust into a position he had no business being in. He was a, a criminal that became a celebrity, basically. But when, you remember when he says, can't we all just get along? You know, we kind of panned that. We laughed a little bit, but he had a point. He, he didn't know he had a point, I don't think, but he, he was making a point. Well, in a church, that's what Paul wants, too. So these are five commands. And the first one is rejoice. Now, the context of the rejoicing is not specifically mentioned here. But in the overall context, not, not in the immediate paragraph, but in the overall context of 2 Corinthians and even 1 Corinthians, we might could add with, with some sort of certainty this phrase, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. In spite of all the difficulties that life brings us. And many of you are going through difficulties even right now to a greater or lesser degree, in spite of all the difficulties of life, in spite of failures that come our way, most of them because of our own poor choices, in spite of the discipline 
and tough words from Paul to the Corinthians, they needed to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, because that relationship with the Lord cannot be broken. It's a permanent relationship. Now, in a church, these relationships can be broken, frankly. People get mad, they get up, they go somewhere else. They get mad at somebody at that church, they get up, they go somewhere else. They, they, they look at themselves, they've been to 20 different churches in 20 years. And they say, I just can't find a church that's healthy. You know, maybe we need to work on ourselves first. We all have old sin natures. We need to rejoice in the Lord. You see, that's our focal point. That's the integration point for all of us is the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're happy in Him, everything else on this list is going to come naturally. It's going to come easy. Now, He's going to tell us we've got to work at it in just a second, but it's still going to flow if we're rejoicing in the Lord no matter what the circumstance you know, Paul's already said earlier in this letter that, that he's learned to be content in, in, in the church of Philippi too. I've learned to be content. I can be happy whatever circumstance. Remember chapters 10 all the way through chapter 12, he gave this roster of things, the roster of difficulties that he faced. But he was still hanging in there. He was still rejoicing in the Lord. The next imperative, the New American Standard translates, be made complete. Now, when you, when you find in your Bibles, if you're sitting next to someone and their translation says something different and then maybe across the room there's another translation of the same phrase, it means the underlying Greek text may be a little more difficult. Not ambiguous so much, but a little more difficult to translate. Actually, this Greek term katharizo might actually, in this context, be better translated, better than be made complete, better translated, mend your ways, or possibly put things in order. Or I think best, it would be translated, work at your restoration. Work at it. He spilled a lot of ink between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and also between two letters that we don't have, trying to get them to realize they have a problem and then to fix that problem. And now at the, at the very end, he's going to go back to a summary of what he wants them to do to fix the problem. The first problem is to re remember their family, rejoice in the Lord, and now they got to work at restoration. You know why a lot of friendships bust up and never get back together? It's because one or the other of the friends says, I'm waiting for him to call me. And I, I can't tell you how many times, how many times I've talked to folks. Say, well, whatever happened with you and so-and-so? Well, he never called me. I said, do you not have a phone? Seriously. Do you, do you not have a phone? Do you, do you, can you not buy a stamp? Do you not have a car? Well, no, I'm waiting for him to call me. No, no, that's not the point. The point is, what are you doing about it? So if you're doing nothing about it, don't tell me you want to restore the friendship. Seriously. Whether that's with a friend or whether that's with a family member, and I know I'm getting close. I know, but hear me out. Maybe you ought to work at it. Well, they wronged me. I know that. I heard all about that. But maybe you ought to work at it. That's what Paul's saying here. There are people in the Corinthian church that did not like each other. I mean, that's clear. If, if you've been with us through the whole study, and I know it's taken some time, a few years now, there were people that did not like each other at all. Certainly it was true in Philippi. People didn't like each other there. I mean, two, two women are immortalized in the Word of God that lives and abides forever because they didn't get along. Aren't you glad we don't live in the first century and Paul's writing about us? 
you know, <laughs> I would be worried. <laughs> I knew this guy in Houston, you know. <laughs> oh, Lord, don't, don't write that down. How'd you like to be Yodi? Yodi. I mean, we would, be diff we would be aghast to know that our failure was recorded for all of human history like that. But Paul says, work at it, because unity is not going to come naturally. Somebody's got to make the first move. We hope it would come naturally, but it takes effort. Selflessness is not as common as it should be. Selfishness is common, but not selflessness. Pride is common, but not humility. Then if relationships are going to be restored, it's got to start with humility. Oh, we, we would say it has to start with love, but love's got to start somewhere too. Humility means I'm going to consider somebody else's needs as more important than my own. And Paul's telling him here, work at your restoration. Sometimes we have to work at loving someone else. If they're not quite that lovable, and this is not talking about working up an emotional feeling about them. It's considering their, their interests, their needs more important than your own needs. And then doing something about it. Whether it's picking up the phone or picking up a pen. Do something about it. It might be visiting them. Do something about it. Selfishness is a sure way to ruin any relationship, especially those in the local church, but any relationship. The third phrase is another one of those that's, that has various translations in various Bibles. New American Standard translates this one, be comforted. And that's a possibility. It can also be understood as encourage one another. That's a translation possibility here. But probably better here, Paul is encouraging them to heed his appeals. That's the encouragement here. Listen to what I've been telling you for all these, all these words between all these letters that I've written you. Listen to me, please. It's like a parent, not with a small child, but with a more senior child. Maybe someone that's in their teens. Or maybe even a parent that's discussing a problem with someone with a child that's maybe in their 20s. And you reason with them. Now, with a younger child, you're, you're foolish if you sit down and reason too much. You may just have to say, just do this. Don't play out in the street with all the cars. Well, why? Because you're going to get run over. Well, what's the problem with that? Okay, just don't run in the street. You, see, you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't have time for that right now. But with an adult child that comes to you with a problem, you may say something just like this. Oh, listen to me, son. Please listen to me. I've been through this before. You don't want to do what you're thinking about doing. Please listen to me. Now, that's this word. Here. It's, it's a derivative of parakaleo. That's why some people have translated it, encouraging. But he's encouraging them to a specific thing, to heed what they've been told. Please listen to me, Paul is saying here. Now, the primary command that Paul's been making from 1 Corinthians all the way until now is to love one another. That's the primary command. In fact, there's a central chapter we won't take a quiz here today or an opinion poll, but if you'd say from all the way from 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians, is there a central applicational chapter in the whole of the Corinthian correspondence? I say, yeah, there it is. In terms of the key word being applicational, it's 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter. It's the one that we read at weddings. But it's so much more than just an emotional appeal at a wedding. 
the idea of loving one another is the solution not only to the spiritual gift problems in the immediate context in 1 Corinthians, but all the problems they have, the filing lawsuits against one another, the morality problem in the church, that's a, that's a problem with loving one another, the, the whole issue of arguing over who baptized who. The, the bottom line is he wants us to love one another. So if there's one command that he wants them to heed, it's the command to love one another. We'll get back to that in a moment. All of these imperatives are related, but especially the last two. Be like-minded is the fourth of these present imperatives. It means literally to think the same thing. But its literal meaning is, is not the meaning that, is in terms of how it comes down to us, words, the meaning of words are determined by their usage in a particular context. So it would be a mistake to, to translate it to simply think the same things. We're not all supposed to be robots with all the same tastes, with all the same likes and dislikes. That's not what this means. It means to be like-minded. And again, to be like-minded doesn't mean that we have to like the same movies or the same sports or like sports at all or wear the same things or be of the same socioeconomic class. That's not what being like-minded is. This actually goes back to the first of the imperatives, to rejoice in the Lord, to remember that in the Lord part. That's where we're like-minded. This is the exact same thing, exact same wording that Paul uses when he speaks to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. He tells them the same thing. Some people understand this as be harmonious. Now, in, a, in an orchestra, and, and again, I'm not a... I studied music when I was like in the fourth grade. That makes me about nine years old. I had a baritone. You know, boom, boom, boom. That was as far as I got. You know, I participated in the church orchestra. It might shock you today to find out that I did. I do know some about the notes. Some people don't think I do, but I do know a little bit about it because I had this baritone that I carted all around. But one thing that I, that I learned from the only concert that I ever got to do, it was, it's a little embarrassing to me, we were always supposed to play a part in this, in this piece that was actually fairly pretty. Now, my part was just like boom, 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 boom. If, it, if that was all it was, it wouldn't have been a very pretty piece. But if you add that to the violins and the clarinets and everything, and you play it all together, you make beautiful music together. You, you make harmony together. It's something that's good to hear and is edifying to people. But if somebody decides they're going to play something else, if I decide I'm just going to play whatever I want, I don't like those notes, then it's going to mess up the whole symphony. Now, it may still be tolerable if one of the instruments is playing something they're not supposed to play, but get two or three of them to do it, and it's just going to sound like bad noise. I wonder how many times the outreach of our churches sound like bad noise to the communities that we're supposed to be ministering to. And when it sounds like bad noise, you think they're going to say, hey, listen, let's go visit that place over there. Come, come with me this Sunday. Who wants to go hear a bad symphony? That's what Paul's talking about. When he says, be like-minded, it's be harmonious. We all may play different roles in the body of Christ, but there needs to be a harmony because we're all focused on the same Lord, focused on the same Master. That's what he means by being like-minded. That's what it meant. And the scripture reading that Alex did this morning from John chapter 17. 
We're, we're to be sanctified in the truth. We're to be set apart in the truth. And that should bring unity. Theoretically. The more truth we know, the more unified we should be. But it doesn't work that way practically. Far too often. And that's because of us. That's because our old sin natures get into the way. We're to agree in the Lord. That's what this is a summons to do. It's not a summons that, that makes us all like the same things. There's one thing that we ought to all like and have in common, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the written word as well, as one package. God should be our focus. And this is going to be hard to swallow, but everything else should be on the table for flexibility. The truth, we can't compromise on that. What the pastor wears, what kind of chairs we have, what color the carpet is, when we meet, where we meet. All those have to be areas of flexibility. We can have our likes and we can have our dislikes, but we have to be like-minded when it comes to Jesus Christ. And guess what? Just these first four imperatives, if we didn't have the last one, if we just were rejoicing in the Lord, if we were working at this, if we were making an effort... If we were heeding the appeal, and particularly the appeal to love one another, if we're being like-minded, we're going to be successful as a local church. Any church is going to be successful. The Corinthian church would later, I hope. If we can just do that, we'll be fine. We're not to be clones of each other. If every member of a symphony was a tuba, you better be J.S. Bach writing it. I'm telling you what, you better be brilliant to make that sound good. But they use different instruments, all with the same purpose of producing beautiful music. And that's what God's doing in a local church. That's what he's doing here. We have so many different instruments here, so many beautiful instruments. Each of you has a spiritual gift that was given to you for the edification of the church, for the building up of the body of Christ, not to use for ourselves. We all were given something to help somebody else. I don't like gimmicky things. But here's one gimmicky thing, if, if, you, if you like them. Pick somebody, not this week, because they're going to know you're doing it. But, but pick somebody in this local church that you don't usually talk to, that you don't know very well, and go do something nice for that person. Whether it's just walking by them and asking them how their week was, getting them a cup of coffee, just have a little chat with them. Now, not your friends, because you're going to do that anyway. That's going to that's become way too natural. I'm gonna, I want to get you out of your comfort zone for a moment. And again, let's don't do it this week. Let's don't be nice to anybody this week. Let's wait. Let's wait. All right? But just try it. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to be so jazzed by the look on their face. You'll be so excited that you're going to want to do it the next week, too. And then the next week, too. And the thing is, if you just have one person doing that, that's going to be a nice dynamic. If you've got 100, 150, 200 people doing it, can you, can you imagine the dynamic? And then can you imagine the impact that that kind of local church is going to have on its world? Just a word of encouragement, just a card. It would be incredible. There was a lady, she's with the Lord now, but she used to, she used to write cards to people in the church. And nobody knew it, except the people getting them. And nobody really said much about it. But I'll tell you what, at her funeral, there was a whole lot of folks, and it was said, something was said then, it meant a lot to people. And maybe you're not a card writer, but you could pick up the phone 
I heard recently about someone in their church, they asked somebody else to go to lunch. They didn't know him at all, but they saw him standing off by themselves one day. Went by and said, hey, what you doing for lunch? Let's go. It's little things, but that's part of the working this thing out. Rejoice in the Lord. Work at this. Heed my appeal to love and be like-minded in the truth. Be set apart in the truth. Our interaction must be based on our common bond in Jesus Christ, not the color of the carpet or our skin, not the style of music or even what we wear. It's got to be our bond in Christ. That's what draws us together. And this is no small point. This is huge as we conclude this letter. I mean, it's massive. It's critical beyond words because anything else will kill a local church. And killing a local church is not killing like killing a Rotary Club or an Optimist Club. I've been members of both, so I could say that. If those things go away, it may hurt the community. But if a local church dies, it's far more devastating. Selfishness will kill a local church, but selfless is one of the major factors in church growth. And by the way, church growth is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. If we really believe that the Word of God can change lives, why wouldn't we want more people to hear it? And I know not everybody agrees with that. I once had a man come to me, not at this campus, but at the other campus, after church on a Wednesday night, and he let me know for darn sure he didn't want this church to grow. Matter of fact, he thought it was too big already. He wanted to get smaller. I said, I just don't see how that's biblical. Why would we want fewer people to hear the truth? Now, granted, we, we may not have the personal taste to have a church of 25,000 people because we, we may think we'd get lost, but, but why would we not want more people to hear the truth? I have the answer if you're ready to hear it. Selfishness. One of my very, very good friends who, who's in the church, he was one of the first, well, he's at least in the first dozen people that came to the church. He came to the church until there was about 50 people. When there was 50 people at the church, he came and said, I'm not coming anymore. And I said, why? He said, this church is way too big for me. You know, I don't see you having time to talk with me much anymore. I talked with him every week. I went to lunch with him once a week. What, are you what do you mean? You see, he didn't feel like his need for me to talk to him was being met. I said, well, what about the other people in the church, or these 50 people in this mega church? <laughs> <laughs> and I love the guy even to this day, but it's odd to me. Church growth is not a bad thing. It's not bad to invite somebody to come to church. We have more chairs. We can get a bigger facility. If we're really doing something that's worthwhile, why wouldn't we? With the fifth imperative, the final one that Paul brings up in this letter, well, actually, in terms of cultivating peace or unity, is just that. The New American Standards live in peace, is good as far as it goes. But again, I'm going back to immediate context. This verb form of the noun irene, which is the word for peace in the Greek, actually means, the verb form as it is, actually means to cultivate, to actively cultivate peace. You see what Paul's doing at the end of this letter? You see what we're doing today as we wrap up this Corinthian correspondence? This is an urgent appeal. It's an urgent appeal to work at it, to heed it, to listen to it, to cultivate it. This is not one of those things like, I have a lemon tree that my dear mom gave me. 
for my birthday a few years ago. It's my favorite plant that I have outside. I planted it. In its early days, we watered it. I fertilized it once, giving me all kind of lemons now, maybe 200 lemons a year. I just love it. I'm not doing anything to it. I'm not cultivating it. I should get out there and fertilize it, I, I suppose, but I'm getting plenty of lemons from it. It's just kind of happened naturally. But this isn't going to happen naturally. So Paul says you need to pursue peace. You need to cultivate peace. In fact, some of your Bibles may even say that, to pursue peace. Like an animal pursuing its dinner. We need to pursue peace. Now, if this goes against the grain of your DNA right now, and it will everybody at one point or another, then just realize we have something to work on here, and it's us that we need to work on. An animal who doesn't get to go to the Randalls or Safeway or Kroger or Walmart to get their dinner, an animal doesn't just see another animal running by that he'd like to have for dinner and say, well, okay, I'd like to eat that animal, but as long as it comes over here. No. He's going to chase it down. And that's the visual that you should have here with this word. The noun being irony, but it's a verb form that means to cultivate it. Work, on, work at it. It's not like my lemon tree. You can just let it sit there and let the rain water. You've got to go out and water it, fertilize it, trim it up, pursue it, cultivate peace. It's not enough. Listen to me. We're almost closed. It's not enough to live and let live. It's not enough. That's not what Paul's saying here. These are words of action here. It's not enough to say, well, I'm going to let him do this deal. Let her do her deal. None of my business. Yes, it is your business. Not in the context of a local church. Maybe in some ways. But not in the context of a local church. We need to pursue it. Each of us must take the initiative and actively cultivate peace with our fellow believers. Five imperatives. Rejoice in the Lord. Work at your restoration. Heed my appeals. Be like-minded. Cultivate peace. Now, I would hope everything starts to come into focus as we finish these two incredible letters. In contrast to causing divisions, which Paul brought up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the opposite must be our way of life. No divisions. Peace. We need to go out of our way to pursue peace with one another. That is, if this local church or any local church, but I'm speaking to you, this is Pine Valley Bible Church today, so we're speaking to us today. It's a Corinthian message, but it has application to us today. If we're to have an effective church, we've got to do this. We've got to pursue peace, and to pursue peace you also have to communicate, don't you? In some way, verbal or nonverbal, you've got to communicate in some way if we're going to fulfill the purpose for which we were intended. And that means that we must be forever united around the person of Jesus Christ and His Word. That's it. If we just did one thing, it's going to work, because everything else would fall into place. We need to have flexibility in everything else. Unite around Him and His Word. And then there's got to be flexibility. If we want this local church to fulfill its function. A church that refuses to do so may as well shut its doors. Just lock it up and walk away. And do it quickly. 
before God comes down on the church and everybody in it with discipline. So you're better off just shutting it down if we're not going to do this as a local church. And again, I know this was written to Corinth a long time ago, but it's written for our edification, our benefit too. We need to learn from it. No matter how good we think we're doing, we need to do better. And we need to work at it every day. That's the present imperative. I don't often tell you about the, the intricacies of the Greek grammar, but this one matters. It's not a one-time thing where we can decide today, July 27th, 2014, we're going to pursue peace. Guess what? You've got to do it tomorrow, too, and the next day, and the next Sunday, and the next one after that. This would no more work doing it one time in a local church than it will in your marriage. You know the old joke? It's such a silly camp joke, but you know, I told you I loved you when I married you. If I change my mind, I'll let you know. You know that thing? Well, sometimes we act that way in churches. I said hello to you last year. What do you want? I mean, really? How bad it is when an unchurched person comes into a local assembly and feels the disunity among its members. They'll walk away and never come back. And that's a poor testimony for Jesus. You remember, Jesus is making his appeal through us. Remember back in 2 Corinthians 5, the whole ambassador metaphor. We're ambassadors for him. The text goes on to say, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. This is the only place this particular phrase is used, but the idea of being with us, not just in omnipresence, but in blessing. When God was with Moses, when he's with Abraham, when he's with Isaac, when he's with Jacob, when he's with David, it didn't just mean he was, he was present. It means he was blessing them. Listen, there's a good side to all this. You do this as a local church, and God's going to bless you. He's going to bless us, and isn't that what we want? I do. I want it for me personally, but I want it for us as a group too. I want to be blessed individually in my life, but I want this church to be blessed. And I want us to go out and fulfill the Great Commission. If we do it, he will be with us. Now, don't let that slide. Blessing's a pretty important thing. I could use a little more of it. You could too, couldn't you? So do it. Cultivate peace. Work at your restoration. Rejoice in the Lord. Heed my appeals. Be like-minded. If this was purely a human endeavor, we'd never get it done. God's got to do it through us. We'd never get it done, especially the actively pursuing peace. That goes against most of our grain. We just like to let it go. God says, no, pursue it. You know that's true. When God has his way with us, when we're his willing vessels, the church prospers. You prosper individually. And the church prospers. That doesn't mean you're going to make a million but there's a lot better ways to be blessed and prospered than just making a million. I'm telling you. The last part, greet each other with a holy kiss. The kiss was a cultural expression of greeting or reconciliation in the first century. Of greeting or reconciliation. Get those? Greeting or reconciliation comes right after the pursue peace or cultivate peace. The holy kiss. It's still this way today in some cultures. You go into some European cultures, you go to Italy, you go to France particularly, you see even the men come up and they have the kiss on each cheek. We don't do that so much in our culture. We usually, in our culture, men will shake hands with one another. Maybe they'll hug. But whatever the situation, in the culture of the first century, this is one of those things that was cultural. In the culture of the first century, the way they greeted each other, the way that they expressed love, was to greet each other with a holy kiss, and it was typically on each cheek, men and women both, or men to men, women 
to women ordinarily in that culture. A holy kiss in this context is a kiss set apart, representing unity between brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we, we may not follow the specific in terms of kissing one another in our culture, but we surely should follow this as a custom in terms of its sign. We should follow the spirit of this with, re, with respect to our physical interaction with one another. So all Paul is saying is there's more than to this than just an intellectual exercise. There's a physical exercise too. Now here's the deal. Some people like to be hugged. Other people don't like to be hugged. It's not an expression of love if you're going hugging somebody who doesn't like to be hugged. Seriously. And, I wanna, and I'm deadly serious here. There's not even one ounce of joking about this. I want men, you be careful with this holy kiss thing with women in the church. There, there have been problems with this in the past. You be careful with this. You, you treat her the way she wants to be treated. Someone would prefer to shake hands. Some would prefer a hug. Some may want to peck on the cheek, never on the mouth. We've had people in our church that have done that. It is inappropriate. All right? It better be your daughter or your wife or somebody you know really, really well. <laughs> no, don't, don't use this. I'm, the only reason I'm saying this is because this is, I very seldom have chances to bring this up, but this has happened. Let's don't let it be an issue. But there's got to be some way that you can express it. Maybe a pat on the shoulder. You know, whatever it may be to express physically a greeting and restoration. So let's be careful with, the, with misusing this verse to be sure. The principle is there needs to be some outward expression of what's going on in our soul. That's the principle. The verse 13, all the saints greet you. In some ancient manuscripts, it's part of verse 12. So if your Bible only has 13 verses in chapter 13, that's why. Some of them will, will bring it together. New American Standard has 14. So I'll use this. All the saints greet you. Again, Paul's just saying, you're not in this by yourself. There's other local churches out there. And every one of those local churches is going through the same thing you're going through. That's why these letters are in the Word of God. This is not unique to any given local church. And then in verse 14, this is a beautiful doxology that mentions grace, love, and fellowship along with all the members of the Trinity. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. As there is perfect unity within the Trinity, may there be unity among believers. There will not be perfect unity this side of heaven, but that does not abrogate our responsibility to consistently move in that direction. I'd like to allow Paul himself to close the study of First and Second Corinthians. And I'd like to ask you, if you would, to turn back a book to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he makes the most foundational, applicational point in both of the correspondences. This is the central idea in all the Corinthian correspondence. Now, in terms of why you're turning, let me tell you, in, in terms of the central idea for the last part of it, Paul is telling us that knowing how important unity is to the function of a local church, then he wants us to function in it. He, he wants us to love one another. Well, it's also, this, this appeal he's making to conclude the letter is also really very closely related to the appeal of the whole Corinthian correspondence. 
So let me end this multi-year study by speaking the words of Paul himself, written by the Holy Spirit, communicated through Paul. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecies and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. And it's not jealous. Love does not brag, and it's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, or the completed comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest is love. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Thank you, Father, for this Corinthian correspondence written so long ago to a church in trouble, but so applicable today, even 2,000 years later, to every church, even healthy churches. I thank you for this message that Paul gave us. Now, now may we take it to heart. May we heed it. May we, work, may we rejoice in you Maybe work, may we work at our restoration. May we be like-minded. May we pursue peace. And may we be a church that fulfills the Great Commission and glorifies you in the process. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.